Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. So glad you could join us. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and today I'll be joined by co-host Lindsey Thomas Jr. And we'll be talking to Dr. Marcus Lashley of the University of Florida Deer Lab about small-scale burning, or bow range burning as he often refers to it. Now, uh, Marcus has been a past speaker at our national conventions uh, as well as an author of articles on both our in both our magazine and on our website, and he's a he, he's just a big proponent of pre- prescribed fire, which is likely why he goes by the Twitter handle Doctor Disturbance. So, yeah, we're going to be taking a deep dive into prescribed burning again, particularly small scale burning uh, that most any of us can accomplish with with a little bit of training and practice. So this is definitely one you don't want to miss. But before we jump on the phone with Marcus, there's a few housekeeping items that we need to take care of. First off, this episode of Deer Season 365 is brought to you by our friends at Land Trust. Land Trust is a recreation access network that connects hunters with landowners to provide access to private land all over the country. Uh, you can really you can think of it as kind of Airbnb of the hunting world. And for every deer hunting trip booked through Land Trust. They'll make a $10 donation back to the National Deer Association. So uh, not only are you going to get a really cool uh, private land hunt, but you're also giving back to conservation in the process. So if you want to explore Land Trust's 500,000 acres of ranch and farmland to find your next deer hunting adventure, hey, visit LandTrust.com. Next up, we have just kicked off our new First Light Sweepstakes, and that's our uh, our new online fundraiser that's going on for the next couple of weeks. So be sure to check that out. Uh, we have a great prize package that we're giving away with that. Uh, that's going to include a First Light Whitetail Catalyst System jacket and bibs, a Matthews V331 compound bow, and that's in First Light Spectre camo. So, man, that thing looks great. Uh, an HHA Optimizer Light bow sight to go on your new bow, and a one-year premium Onyx Hunt membership. So, man, somebody is going to be set up for the upcoming deer season with that package. Uh, you can visit our website at deerassociation.com, and the, the first big banner you're going to see on our website there is for the First Light Sweepstakes. So just click on that and make sure you get your chances for that, and we certainly appreciate any support you give us through that. And while you're on our website, hey, don't forget to check out our special membership offer that we have just for our podcast listeners. Uh, You can click that big join or renew button up at the top and use the promo code podcast. Doesn't matter if it's uppercase, lowercase, any of it should work, but that's going to knock $5 off our annual membership price. So you're going to get a membership for 30 bucks and you're also going to get a free NDA cap to go with it. So a a uh, great deal there. Um, not only are you getting a discount, but you'll get some uh, some cool swag there in the form of an NDA cap. So be sure to take advantage of that. And the last thing I want to touch on before we jump on the phone here with Marcus is uh, just a, a big thanks to everybody who's subscribed to the podcast, all of you who have you know listened to the first episode, who left us a five star rating. Uh, man, we can't thank you enough for all that. Uh, we were actually able to hit the number 11 spot on the Apple podcast charts for the sports wilderness category, which that's where all the hunting, fishing and outdoor recreational podcasts fall. So, man, we were, we were really excited about that. Hey, we would love to break that top 10 this week. So uh, but but we need your help with that. If you, if you haven't already, hey, be sure to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. 
Uh, if you happen to be listen, listening on Apple Podcast, hey, we'd love it if you'd hit that five-star rating. And uh, if you're feeling especially generous, hey, take a minute to leave us a written review. We would love to have some of those. Uh, we might read it off right here on the next podcast. So uh, we greatly appreciate that. And hey, just share this episode or the previous episode with your with your friends on on social media or through email or or tell them about it in person. Just help us get the word out about this new podcast. And hey, with all that, we're going to jump on the phone here with Marcus and Lindsay and talk a little bit about bow range burning. All right, guys, we have Dr. Marcus Lashley on the phone, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Disturbance. Uh, Marcus, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are y'all doing? Doing well. Doing just fine. We uh, again, we appreciate you, you know, taking your time to to come on here and talk to us. And uh, I got to say, as as the owner of a, a a new or the new owner of a, of a small property, I'm I'm really interested in this whole bow range burning technique that sure. uh, we've brought you on here to discuss. I'm not really in a position to do any any big scale burning at this point, but this this really intrigues me. So I'm. Mm-hmm. Um, Excited to kind of dive into that, but but before we do, before we get too far into that, uh, maybe if if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe how you ended up with a, a nickname like Doctor Disturbance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me on here. I I, I love uh, coming on shows like this. I love what you guys are doing and all the support. Uh, yeah. As far as my background, I grew up in the South grew up hunting and fishing and that, you know, sort of set me on this path to where I've, I've gotten to today. So, uh, kind of bounced around the South and, and, uh, got degrees at multiple institutions. In every case, I was focused on habitat management specifically for deer and Turkey. And now I've broadened out a little more and, and I'm thinking about other species, not, not even just game species, but if it is a game species, you can bet that I'm interested in it. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, I've been really interested in habitat management and, and looking at the landscape in the South in particular, fire is an integral component of a habitat management plan at the landscape scale for, for virtually all of those species, uh, at least the upland ones. So, uh, but it can be even for some of the bottom one species. So that that's really how I've gotten to the research program that I have now with the UF Deer Lab at, at the University of Florida. I've really uh, been focused on habitat management and how we can use fire and get more people burning at the, the landscape scale. Because I, when I look at the landscape, I'm seeing a lot of, of uh, land that's not being influenced by fire now. And I, I think uh, we could really benefit from more people doing that. So I, I try to focus on ways that we can reduce those barriers to people. Just like you were talking about, you have a small property, you're not going to be able to burn a a large landscape. But a lot of people also, if you're not comfortable with fire, uh, you know, you're not, you're you're probably afraid of doing it at a scale that you see on on public land in particular. And, you know, a lot of people don't have access to fire. I, I get that. They don't own land or they're in a place they can't use it. But a lot of people do. A lot of people can use fire and they're not because of other barriers. And that's really what, what I've been focusing on because I just see a, a, a big need for that. And, you know, if you're managing deer or, or any of these other upland game species, uh, fire can be a really helpful tool in your, your toolbox. Yeah, it, it's funny. I've, I've worked for a 
couple different state agencies, and I've done a good bit of burning in pretty large scale on public lands. Mm-hmm. But boy, I, I tell you, it is it is a little more intimidating when it's your own property and, and your responsibility and, you know, you have neighbors and, and you're on the hook for what's going on. So. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think, uh, you know, in my experience, I've, I've been around for a while now, I guess. I, I was on faculty at Mississippi State for four years before moving to the University of Florida and I uh, worked with the MSU Deer Lab. And of course, I've known you guys for, for years, even before that, going through graduate school with uh, Craig Harper at the University of Tennessee and Chris Mormon at NC State University. I've been been around for a long time and talked to a lot of people about fire and burned on a lot of people's properties and helped them out with management plans. And one of the things that, that definitely has stuck out is that that one issue is, you know, how, how much should I be burning? And I'm afraid to burn 50 acres at a time because I can't see across it or, you know, the smoke might be an issue or whatever. And uh, that that's kind of led me to the line of research on, well, how big do we need to burn before we can start seeing some of the benefits of fire that, that we would want when managing deer or any other species? Yeah. Now, before we dive into kind of the specifics of the the bow range burning or these small scale burns that, that we brought you on here to talk about, mm-hmm. can, can you just touch on some of the basic benefits, just kind of broad level of of prescribed fire in general. I mean, why, why sure. do people, why are you promoting people to, to burn on their property? Right. Great question. And, uh, I could spend all day talking about just that <laughs> thing, but I'll, I'll try to keep it to the elevator version. Uh, yeah. So a, a lot of our species and deer are included in this do really well in an open canopy system that has a really well developed understory. And you think about deer, how high can they reach? You know, we're basically talking about using fire to influence vegetation below that, you know, wherever that browse line is. So fire is a really useful tool when you have enough sunlight. And that could be whether you're managing old fields or or if you have a, you know, a closed canopy forest, you go in and thin and get enough sunlight penetrating the, uh, to the forest floor you can really strongly influence the structure and composition of the vegetation that's available to deer. So they're, they're, you, know, you can improve the amount of forage available, but also improve structure for fawning and, and uh, cover throughout the year. And you can uh, use it strategically to attract deer as well. Yeah. Now, one thing I've noticed from, now I'm originally, originally from Kentucky and like I said, I've worked Worked up there, done some burning there, but it was all pretty small scale. It was mm-hmm. mostly fields. Uh, we were doing, at the time, doing a lot of conversion to native warm season grasses or maintaining native warm season grasses. Uh, then then I moved here to Georgia, and of course, the, the burning is a lot more prolific, especially, like you said, on public lands. Uh, but still, it was, it was mainly, down here, of course, it was mainly pine plantings. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about hard i mean can burning be beneficial outside of just these pine plantations and you know hardwoods as well sure yeah that's a great question and another barrier if you own upland hardwoods most and it's oak dominated most likely they are species that like fire and you can effectively burn in those systems uh you know sunlight is typically more limiting in that system to the responses of fire that you want so 
you know, uh, in, influencing the canopy so that enough sunlight is penetrating to the forest floor is important. But you can safely burn in upland hardwood forests. And uh, one line of research that I've been involved with, just kind of deep, going a little deeper into that, you know, uh, a lot of our upland oak species, you know, white oak, uh, chestnut oak, a lot of those species like that are fire adapted and they have a suite of adaptations to promote fire in the system. So, for instance, if you think about how the lobing on the leaf is and how the leaves curl when they fall off the tree, they create this really fluffy uh, you know, leaf litter. That, that is a characteristic that promotes burning and they typically are more competitive with, you know, things that we don't want, like maples or sweet gums, you know, those, those invaders, the elms, those kinds of things, they are more competitive with fire in the system regenerating, you know, and, uh, over those other species. So, the, you know, I guess that was a long answer to, to get to your question. Fire can be safely used in those systems. Uh, I actually just recently did a broad literature review on this and, and have been working with you guys to try to get that out in a couple of ways that will be coming soon. But, uh, you know, one of the problems in the hardwood system is that people are afraid to damage their timber. And uh, I get that. You're, you're definitely, you know, using fire in the place that you're trying to, to grow high quality veneer, probably not the best case. But, uh, you know, if you're really interested in improving habitat for deer, fire can be a really important part of that in upland hardwoods as well. Are there precautions you can take? Yeah, so there are some precautions. Let, let's we'll take a step back for a minute. Um, when when just to give you some basics, when I've been going through the literature, in general, if you're burning regularly, multiple times, you know, over a, a, the you know, let's say a couple of decades, if you're burning four or five times, the study suggests that for from an oak timber volume standpoint. We are very rarely even around 3% loss in volume. So it's not even, it's not that big of an impact on the growth of those species. We can damage those, but I can also kill only pine with fire, right? right. So you, we, one of the precautions that you would be taking is to use firing techniques that, that uh, have a low flame height, low flame intensity. You know, and you can use that very safely, you know, take your time go at smaller scales, those are good precautions to take. Uh, in that system, if you're not getting a lot of sunlight to the ground, you're, you're pretty well restricted to the dormant season months and maybe some of the fall months uh, because you, you need that sunlight to penetrate to dry out the leaf litter, especially in the condition that we have now where we have a whole bunch of mid-story hardwoods like those elms and, and maples and things I was talking about they actually have leaf characteristics that suppress fire and they need a lot of radiative energy to dry out the leaf litter to promote the, the flame uh, moving across it. So uh, you're a little more restrictive and especially in the closed canopy condition from when you can use fire, but you certainly can use it safely if you are using firing techniques during those times that, that result in low flame intensity and low flame height. Uh, another precaution that that a lot of people don't take, but is relatively easy to, especially at small scales, is you know if you've thinned or 
if you've gone in and, and uh, implemented some forest stand improvement where you have a lot of either, uh, you know, standing dead trees or dead trees that, you know, you've killed for one reason or another or laid down, you know, uh, that's one of the things that we recommend pretty commonly. That, that, that large debris sitting next to a high-quality oak, if it catches fire and holds the flame there next to the tree, that can damage the cambium. And uh, some of the studies suggest the majority of damage in a stand is actually from a dead limb or, or a log or something that's up against the tree. So if you take the precaution, if you have some trees, if you go in beforehand that you want to protect, make sure that they don't have any large limbs or, or a log or something up against them. And uh, I've even had some landowners that are really interested in burning, but they still can't quite get over it. Uh, the the risk to the hardwoods and they've actually gone in and raked around their oaks you know just or took a leaf blower and, and blew around it and uh, they've been very successful doing that we can we can take you know a 10 acre block and go do that in a couple of hours and not not even be have flames close to a tree at that point so you can have zero damage which is a uh, pretty effective it just depends on you know how small you you're talking about implementing it and how much time you have to take those precautions. But at that point, when you're that intensive with it, I mean, we can burn without influencing any overstory tree. That's, um, you know, that you, Marcus, you talked about flame height there. And I think that's important to point out. I think a lot of people that have not been experienced with, with fire and been around it and they hear mm-hmm. us or you or anybody else promoting prescribed fire, they might be picturing, you know, rip roaring wildfires like they see on the news (laughs) or you know even people who burn warm season grass stands in in the midwest big fields you know you get some pretty hot fires out in those grass fields and i think a lot of people are picturing that but when you do this under the right conditions weather conditions Mm -hmm. wind conditions humidity and you like you said the right firing techniques you know lighting it on the right side of the wind uh for Mm -hmm. the situation you're burning in it really is can be a pretty quiet operation. There's a lot of, you know, sure. once it's excitement build, building up to the point where you light it, and then there's a good bit of standing around and watching uh, involved <laughs> right. with described fire. And I don't think people, you know, new people to this realize that, that when you do it under the right conditions, it's actually very safe and even sometimes boring. Uh, is that, you yeah. know, is that your experience? Oh, yeah. I, um, I'm right there with you. Uh, I, I'm really careful to you know, when I'm posting something online or, or I have a presentation not to perpetuate that, <laughs> that idea, you know, we're, we're not talking about lighting a head fire that has 10 foot flame height, especially in the hardwood system. I mean, we're just not doing that. In a lot of cases, you wouldn't even be able to get it to do like that uh, under the conditions you'd be burning. So, uh, yeah, we're certainly not talking about this ripping and roaring fire. And in fact, just to kind of give people you know, a, a mental vision of what I'm talking about. It's pretty common in an upland hardwood system when I'm burning that I will have pictures I show online or a video or whatever, where I'm literally straddling the fire and I have, you know, the, the shot going right down the fire line. So that's the flame intensity. You want to be able to stand on both sides of it at the same time and that not be a problem. Right. Or step so, through, walk through the fire line when you're right, working exactly. in the area. Yeah, yeah, it's very common in in those conditions that we were burning at such a low intensity and flame height that you can step right over back and forth in the fire. So very yeah. common. That's a good point. Yeah, 
Uh, now, you've kind of touched on this a couple of times, but it, it sounds like unless you have some open canopy, some some sunlight getting to the forest floor, uh, you're probably not going to see a whole lot of benefit from prescribed fire. Is that like fairly accurate? Or yeah, so uh, there there are some benefits that you can get. It is they they are synergistic with one another. And uh, they're even non-additive. And what I mean by that is if you if you put the two together, you get a, you know, like a more than twice the benefit, if that makes sense. In other words, you can thin in an upland hardwood system. And, you know, the if you thin, you'll you'll triple or quadruple the biomass of deer forage available. But if you add fire in, you might get up to six or eight times if you burn under an and a closed canopy, the benefit that you might get out of that is killing some of the hardwoods in the midstory. In terms of the forb response and grasses, uh, the things that, that you really want, the herbaceous community in the understory that, that are food or cover, you don't get as much response from that generally. Most of my experience and, and the research I've published on it, if you're in a closed canopy condition, you end up with about the same and maybe double the the amount of forage available if it's closed canopy. So, you know, that that's what I'm I guess I'm why I'm promoting the the open canopy because then, you know, when you implement fire, we're talking about a six or eight or ten. I've seen it up up tenfold the production. We actually just posted something a, a couple of days ago uh showing that that you also get more bang for your buck out of that if it's in poor soil. So a lot of people, it's another barrier. Uh, my dirt is too poor to manage. You guys probably hear that. You know, so they just they just give up. And it's like, well, you know, you're not going to produce the same amount of forage in the poor dirt that you could in a high quality site. But the amount of improvement you get out of that practice is is substantial. So we commonly see 10 or upwards of even 15 times as much deer forage available by thinning and burning in that poorer dirt. So you get more bang for your buck out of it, even though it's still not as good as, as it would be on the really high quality sites. You know, it's still a, a really good practice to implement if you're interested in, in uh, forage production. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that you don't get any benefits out of burning under the closed canopy because you can, especially with the the uh, top killing of hardwoods, and you get some resprouting from those, which of course uh, are really high quality. But uh, in terms of the the full spectrum of benefits, it's limited by light in that closed canopy. So even a, a low intensity fire like like you and Lindsay were talking about earlier, that'll that'll knock back or top kill some of those hardwoods those sweet gums and yeah and, and particularly in pine systems where you're still getting a really ubiquitous spread of fire because of the pine needles are carrying the fire even in that and uh i'm thinking I've, I've got a couple of studies that we've been working on with this with graduate students and i've been especially with the growing season fire we we would literally have ankle high to you know never above knee high fires in june and i'm watching it you know all day moving through this 10 acre block and there's sweet gums in the mid-story in it just thinking man it's never going to do anything and it absolutely hammers them. Huh. 
at the residence time is such that, you know, even though it's low intensity, because the temperatures outside are, the ambient temperature is already pretty high, you're already pretty close to the the temperature that will kill the hardwood. And uh, yeah, I've been pretty surprised that even in a closed canopy, when you have a really low fire intensity, you can still be pretty effective at top killing those hardwoods. The timing of the year uh, will be more uh, determinant, I guess, in, in uh, determining whether or not you kill the hardwoods outright. You're more effective generally in the fall uh, at doing that than you would be at other times of the year. But in terms of top killing them, it's pretty effective. I've, I've been surprised several times. Okay. Good to know. Now, let's dive, I guess, more specifically into into what we had you on here for, which was the the bow range burning. Now, mm-hmm. um, now, now, Lindsay here did a did a great article on this uh, on our website that was based on, I believe, a presentation that you gave actually at one of our national conventions. Yep. Um, and and maybe Deer Study Group as well. But can can you tell us a little bit more about what bow range burning is and kind of uh, what inspired you to experiment with these these small scale uh, fires? Yeah, so uh, that that's correct. Uh, the bow range burning. I think the first time that I, that that word w- was put out there was at the QDMA convention, and uh, then then I worked with Lindsay, who wrote a great article for you guys. Uh, I appreciate that, but that that was spawned by several things that we've already been talking about. One, I've been trying to come up with creative ways to get at these barriers and show people that, that uh, you know, you can use fire effectively, even at small scales uh, at different times of the year. And I was kind of coupling that also with trying to get students involved and get them, uh, you know, using fire and comfortable with it and understanding the effects. And actually that experiment originally started in the classroom with graduate students. I was teaching an advanced habitat management course and we, we went out and set up a whole bunch of sites and I was trying to do several things. It was a fall course. One, I wanted to look at fall burning. Two, uh, I was really interested in how small could we could we burn, and it was a, just a perfect opportunity to get the students involved. So we went all the way down to a thirty meter radius, which is about what, you, what most people are comfortable shooting a bow. And uh, that's that's where that all came from. Is that it was something that we could accomplish, you know, in that in that classroom, but also. It was something that most landowners would be comfortable with, and it was during the fall. So that was kind of the idea is we could tackle all of those issues at once. And, of course, I'm an avid bow hunter. So immediately I was like, oh, man, this is this is basically the bow range that I'm burning right here. And that's where that t- that, that uh, term came from, bow range burning. Like if he's stepping in the black, time to attack. You know, <laughs> there you go. You know, no, no need for a range finder anymore. Just wait till he steps in the black. So that, that's kind of what spawned the idea. And we, we, as a class, came up with this research design. We collected data actually beyond the class on deer use and forage production and all those things and how the deer actually were affecting the plant community. Uh, and then we published it in the 
a peer-reviewed publication. So it was really cool for the students to be involved in that whole process and, and see the value of fire. And then one thing that, that I wasn't expecting is, you know, it kind of caught on and, uh, you know, it's, we started seeing it a lot on online and social media. You know, I was presenting it with you guys and a lot of people started contacting us and the students seeing that, they started seeing the value of creativity, you know, and, and uh, science outreach. And, uh, man, I, I still get emailed a lot saying, you know, people telling me that they're burning now because they, you know, they started with bow range burning, which is really cool. And that was the whole point was anybody can, you know, rake out a, you know, a 10 by 10 square and start practicing with fire and start understanding how fuels work and what conditions, how they make the fire act, you know, the, how wind direction affects things. And, uh, that was kind of the idea. I mean, I, I play around with fuels all the time. I have a pokeweed plant in my yard that, uh, I'll put fuel around and burn it. I'm burning like a square meter, just trying to see how the pokeweed responds to it. I mean, you know, I'm tinkering around with those things all the time. And that's kind of what that idea was. It's like if we burn at a scale that we're, you know, we're not going to have a broad scale impact on habitat quality necessarily, but could we still have an impact on deer behavior that would be beneficial to us during hunting season? So that, that's where all that came from. We put a, basically a camera on it that's sort of our observer, like you were in your tree stand, to to see how much did it impact deer behavior or deer visitation to that. And what we ended up doing was uh, counting the number of photos that we were getting and those compared to, to control sites where we didn't burn. So we set up cameras on both and monitored deer use on both and then implemented a fire one month before bow season in Mississippi. So basically burned in early September and then monitored how that affected deer use of that space, knowing how they used it compared to the other unburned sites beforehand. So that was kind of the idea. Uh, in a nutshell, we, we were trying to target several aspects of, of this, you know, prescribed fire realm that, that seemed to be barriers to folks. And I do it in a fun way and creative way that that people could see real benefits from it if they implemented it. That's I'm going to jump in and mention this, emphasize that what you just said, because, you know, we're talking about science here and we're talking to Professor Lashley. But, you know, this isn't people in lab coats, you know, in in, uh, working with test tubes. I mean, y'all are hunters. You're a hunter. A lot of your students are hunters. Um, your, some of your professors over your career have been deer hunters. I mean, y'all are passionate about this. And, um, you know, a lot of, I don't think a lot of hunters realize that, uh, you know, that your scientific work is driven by your, um, interest in, in hunting and has guided a lot of the direction of this research and some of the things you've looked into. And in this case, I think it's exactly why what y'all found made a neat connection with hunters, just like you're saying, you're still hearing from people um, about this technique because, you know, y'all were looking at it from a standpoint of how can we get in bow range of a deer? Um, not just so much, you know, habitat improvement and, and the science of fire, but ultimately trying to put backstraps on a grill. And uh, so just that to me is, is neat that, that the, y'all as scientists are deer hunters and it ends up really producing some cool stuff for all of us. Yeah, we we definitely never did anything that cool in any of my wildlife courses, that's for sure. 
Oh yeah, that's that's yeah, good that, stuff there. That, that's one of the the issues I think you know with it, it's inevitable, and uh, as we you know as society continues to move forward, it's going to get harder and harder to get students field experience with a lot of these important things. And you know, there's another thing that I was trying to be creative. How do I get a drip torch in students' hands in a safe way that's practical in the classroom? So, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. I love working with students to do those sorts of things. Yeah. So let's, let's break down this process then, uh, this bow range burning process. So, mm-hmm. um, if, if I wanted to create this, this spot, like you've talked about that I wanted to hunt over, say in October, when am I going to start this process, this bow range burning process? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So folks that have, that have listened to me talk, they've almost certainly heard me talk about something called the magnet effect. And just to give you an example of what that means with the bow range burning experiments, we were seeing more than a tenfold increase in the number of bow shots you would get if you implemented the bow range burning. Again, we're comparing it to sites that we did not burn. So that, that's a pretty big increase. And, and uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I was pretty shocked with that. I was not expecting that magnitude of effect. But particularly during that time, think about what it looks like outside in the early fall when everything is senescing and there's not acorns around. Basically, what we did is created this big flush of vegetation right before dormant season, and all that really high-quality stuff was really attractive. We actually saw a bigger magnet effect than usual. But the reason that I timed it in September leading into the October bow season is because the magnet effect is it generally peaks somewhere between six and ten weeks, depending on the site. And uh, we've seen it last for actually more than one growing season now but we what i'm saying when i'm talking about the magnet effect i'm basically talking about if you followed deer use or any species but we'll just focus on deer you followed their use of a stand and just see what the baseline use of that stand is and then you implement fire as soon as the vegetation starts to respond and sometimes that's within days or a week uh, depending on where you're at and what time of the year it is but as soon as that vegetation starts responding, it is extremely high quality. And in fact, the new tender tissue, especially on resprouting species, is even higher quality than it would have been if it was tender tissue on a plant that had not been influenced by fire. So we have this really big resource pulse, essentially, in the vegetation that happens right after fire. And when you have that, you have this magnet effect. And if you look at the baseline use, we increase use by three to 12 or 15 times even I've seen before. So you get this really intensive use by deer. And uh, that's, you know, that that can last for a couple of months uh, where it's really intense. But in general, somewhere between six and eight, 10 weeks, something like that, you can expect that really heightened use. So because of that, we timed it in September thinking that 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 peak and use would essentially co-occur with the entire bow season. And as long as we didn't get a frost, you know, we thought we'd get it for the whole bow season. And that's where we monitored deer use for that experiment was for the extent of, of the bow season in Mississippi. So 
that that's kind of giving you the background on why we would want to time it about a month, maybe a little longer before your bow season opener. Okay. Gotcha. Now is that, that 10, 10 times, uh, increase, I guess, in, in shot opportunities, I assume that's, those were an increase during daylight hours specifically, or was that just total increase in observations? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so when I think when we published the, the research, we looked at total deer use and the magnitude of total deer use is not that high. It's only like fivefold, but they actually used it more during the day. That was driving a lot of the, the magnitude of effect. And uh, that was for the bow range burning article and the presentations and stuff. Those numbers are based on how many, how many deer step foot in front of that camera during daylight hours, during legal hunting hours. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, that, that uh, tenfold plus response was based strictly on a deer that would have been legal to shoot at, at a given time. Yeah, now, if I could just get uh, Georgia here, or at least where I'm at in Georgia, they, there's actually a, a burn ban from May 1st to October 1st. So I don't know, uh, you think a early October burn, would that leave you enough time to... In, in South Georgia to still get some benefit out of that or? Yeah, I would expect there to be, uh, I would expect there to be, an, you know, essentially if you, if you have about a month before your first frost date, then you can get some benefits in terms of the, you know, the attraction during hunting season. But another thing for you to think about is the, some, a lot of your objectives are not necessarily related strictly to whether or not it gives you more shot opportunities or attraction during deer season. And in cases where uh, you could burn in the fall, but you're not going to get the benefit of the, the intense attraction, you still do get a lot of the, benef- the other benefits of fall burning. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, the hardwood control in particular is very good during the fall. In comparison to other times of the year, the plant killing the plants outright is more common. And a lot of our forb species respond better. So broadly plants that we want to colonize the, the plant community and dominate the plant community tend to be much more abundant following a, a late growing season fire like that than they would be if you burned, you know, in the spring or, or uh, even in the early summer. So you can still realize some of the benefits, even if you're in a situation where you wouldn't get the increased bow shot opportunity. But uh, some of the other stuff I was just on, you know, recently on on the webinar with you guys on the Beer and Deer webinar, and I, I kind of released some new data that I've been working on on the burn window. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was striking to me is that we get a lot of good burn days during the fall, but that is the most... Uh, the least utilized portion of the burn window. In other words, we get a lot of good burn days, but not many people use them. And, uh, you know, that's kind of one of the lines of research that I've been working on with with several of of my colleagues is, you know, are there reasons that we would want to burn during fall? And, you know, are are there reasons that we shouldn't be using the burn window, you know, and and thinking about that uh, as a whole? because generally people aren't using that part of the burn window. All right. So while we're talking about timing and barriers here, let me ask you this question. And I know we'll get back into sort of the how-to on, on bow range burning, but, you know, you're talking about the, the timing and you're saying, you know, 
a month to two months prior to when you want to be hunting that site is sort of the, the ideal timing because that gives you your, that pulse of, the peak pulse of nutrients is going to be, you know, during your time you want to be hunting. So here in Georgia, our bow season opens mid-September. So back that up, we're talking about mid-August. And if we go even earlier, maybe a mid-July uh, burn. Um, and of course, you know, with a growing season burn, you could be grow- burning, you know, June, July uh, in there and having similar benefits throughout the growing season for deer nutrition. But what do you say to people who say, hey, hold on, burning in the summer, aren't I going to kill fawns? Aren't I going to kill turkey poults? Um, you know, I don't want to do that. What do you say to that, you know, perceived barrier? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I get that often. And it, it's the ones that you say, the, the fawning, the, the uh, quail nesting, uh, turkey poults, turkey nesting, all of those are a big barrier. And I think there are a couple of things about that. One, uh, you know, these are scale dependent issues. If you uh, if you're burning 2,000 acres in one block during phoning, that, that's probably not a good idea. But I, I've looked through the literature, and I, I haven't been able to find an example, and that doesn't mean it doesn't ever happen, but I also uh, did work where I radio tagged during my, my PhD work and postdoc work. We were radio tagging phones and following them to see what happens to them. And we were in a landscape that it was, I mean, it is a pyrophytic landscape. Fort Bragg military installation. They, they are lighting most of that place on fire and we could not find, I can't find an example in the literature. And we didn't, we had no instances in that study where a phone was impacted by fire. And that, they're, at the time, they were burning at pretty large scales during phoning. So, uh, another thing to think about on those issues are, you know, the, the nesting birds, the ground nesting birds and fawning co-occur with when fire would have been at its peak on the landscape from, from nature. We know based on a lot of different kinds of data that nature likes to set things on fire during that time. So it's kind of weird to me to think about, you know, I already looked at it. I, I look to nature when I'm thinking about these kinds of questions and forming a hypothesis. It's like, it doesn't make sense to me that all of these things would be trying to reproduce right during the middle of fire season. If we, you know, direct mortality was a big problem. Right. So that's kind of the way that I think about it. And given that there have been a lot of phone studies and I, I haven't, that, that doesn't mean it isn't there. Doesn't mean it doesn't ever happen, but I can't find any examples that show a radio tag phone get, getting engulfed by fire. That being said, something that is more common with all of those species is, you know, having ex- the female, the lactating, having access to recently burned area or the poults having access to recently burned area for brooding. Th- those can be limitations to a population. You know, lactation is the most stressful time for that female. And at Fort Bragg, one of the studies that I'm working on, we're working on getting it published, just in review currently, we show that when fawns are born really far, that's a really poor site, 
It is, it's, uh, they have no form of supplementation whatsoever. They're living off of what nature can provide them. And when those deer birth fawns a long ways from a recently burned area where they could take advantage of that pulse, they have a much higher starvation rate. So we can show that very clearly with the data. And to me, that was pretty striking. You know, in most of the landscape in white-tailed deer, they have access to, to uh, you know, agriculture or food plots or supplementation of some sort. So there's probably uh, buffering some of that. But in this really poor site where the deer don't have any access to, to those things, you know, starvation could become an issue. And, uh, you know, that would be a reason you would want fire to be involved. And, you know, I, I don't want it to get to that point and when in my deer herd, even if I have other forms of supplementation, I want to give them as much good stuff to eat as I can. And if that, if I can do that by extending my burn window and making it easier for me to get my burning done, then I'm personally going to do that given all the data and everything, you know, if, if it was a problem for fawning and, and we could demonstrate that that was a problem, I'd be the first one telling people not to do that. But I, I just can't find any evidence that that's an issue. And I can find a lot of evidence that it was a good thing for them. Now, uh, again, that, that's a scale dependent issue. And I, I would not be burning at really large scales during that time. But, you know, I'm thinking about it like a summer food plot. If, I'm, if I plant a five-acre soybean field, may as well burn a five-acre patch as well. The, in, the likelihood at this point that you're going to impact a phone negatively is pretty low, but that female during lactation having access to all that really supercharged quality vegetation re-sprouting, it, it could be a real value to the deer and for antler production as well. So that's kind of the way I look at it. and and uh, Based on the feedback I've gotten, there's a lot of support for that idea, and then I get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, negative feedback about that position. But no one has really demonstrated to me personally that burning at small scales during those sensitive times have population level consequences, or really even individual ones. And even the ground nesting birds can re-nest, and turkeys generally do you know, about 75% or so of the time. And then when you look at the species as a whole, the thing that we're really seeing problematic with turkeys is poult rearing. That, that's when the, their bottleneck is. The, the nesting is not as big of a, an issue at the landscape scale. Now, locally it could be, but poult survival is really bad across the range of easterns, really. And one, the first place that a hen takes a poult is to a recently burned area. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't just go out of my way to target that, but I certainly don't think it should be as big of a barrier as it is to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of these same folks that are, you know, concerned about fire, you know, don't bat an eye at all the bush hogging and hay cutting and all that stuff that, you know, can have the, the very same impact if not more so. so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I have seen that pretty commonly where yeah. people will, you know, you'll see those, of course, go viral online where you see somebody ran over a phone or, or uh, you know, uh, ran over a nest or whatever. You certainly could have just as much of an impact with those. Uh, another thing, especially in, in the turkey literature, it's, it's much better known, but... Uh, you know, the places that I see fawns, 
especially in a pine landscape, the, the places that I see them bedding are not places that are getting burned anyway. And another way to look at that is if you have a, a stand that's two years past due and it's rank and nothing's using it to nest in, why are you worried about burning it during nesting? Right. If it's already not usable for nesting, you're not going to negatively impact nesting by burning during nesting. So, you know, there are all these things to, to look at. I don't want to see anybody burn burn up a nest or a phone any more than anybody else. I'm just, you know, I'm a hunter and a conservationist concerned about the resource. And one of the problems I see is that we're not using fire enough at the landscape scale. And I don't really see a big problem, especially at small scales, at targeting those times, you know, for specific reasons. Whether it just, if it's just to get your burning done, I think that's a pretty good reason. Yeah. So let's let's walk through the process then. Somebody that's coming in, they've n- never done this before, never burned before, and they want to do one of these small scale, you know, a, a bow range burning type scenario. Mm-hmm. Walk walk us through the steps. What are they going to need to do? What kind of equipment do they need to have? That kind of stuff. Sure. Well, the first thing I recommend is that that people go get some training wherever you're at. You have access to training. Go do that. Get your uh, prescribed burn. Uh, certificate that there's also a lot of opportunities for learning burns. I know uh, I'm really familiar with the opportunities in Alabama because I'm a landowner in Alabama and I work with a lot of people in Alabama. They have learning burns all the time. So you probably have access to that wherever you're at. And I definitely uh, would promote that you, you go and do that. Another thing that you need to do in prep is, is uh, get a burn plan together. That seems like it's a, a real big deal, but it's really not. It's not that difficult to put together. You have a, probably a state forestry agency that has examples online for you or a template for you to, to download, uh, and it's really easy to fill out. So I'd suggest doing that. And then, you know, of course, call on the, the day of the burn and let the, the uh, local agency know that you're going to be doing that. Uh, in my experience, they often are not issuing you a permit per se for it being such small scale. So, uh, but I still call them and, and let them know before doing that. So that, that's kind of the, the general process in terms of what you need to get in the field. The, the original bow range burning experiments, we did it in pine and in hardwood. Those we used a, we had a back, one person with a backpack water sprayer. It was just the same thing you'd use for herbicide, you know, a little pump backpack sprayer and we had one person with a a uh, leaf blower and we literally just walked around the circle and blew out the fire break with the the leaf blower we had one person with a rake i don't think we even used it but uh, we had a council rake and then we had one person with a flapper and we definitely did not use that <laughs> so you know we, we're talking about we, we had more people than that, but that, I think we had four tools total when we were doing those. And we were able to get knock out several in one afternoon. So uh, we did it during one lab period where we did several, several of them. And uh, yeah, then, you know, the, the nice thing about that is then with the drip torch, you know, it, it's relatively easy to light that. I would suggest using a backing fire where you're just letting the, the fire creep across it into the wind. If you want to get more done and, and you're in a pine stand in particular, you could go ahead and be a little more aggressive 
and uh, try to get that to burn a little quicker. But at that scale, and especially if you're just doing it on a, a Saturday, you know, when you we have a little time and, and you can just sit out there and, and look at it, uh, you know, backing fire gets across that pretty quick. So, you know, that that's the basic strategy. We The ones that we did, we wouldn't have even needed to take our, our lock on down. We could have just done it with that there. So, yeah, really low in flame intensity. And, uh, you know, another thing about that is you learn so much about the fuels and the conditions and how different things affect it, you know, uh, about how the vegetation is affected and re-sprouts and, you know, what what things do well, what what doesn't, you know, all those sorts of things you're getting experience with. If you decide, you know, you want to scale up and have a real, you know, try to have a bigger impact on habitat, you can. You, you, you know, people start getting comfortable. You can burn your bedroom, right? Not not suggesting people go and burn down their bedroom. <laughs> no, please the, don't. The size, the size of your bedroom, right? <laughs> so, you know, that that's, that's accessible to most people. And uh, use that. And then next thing you know, a lot of people seem to do this. It's like, okay, I'm burning a quarter of an acre. That wasn't too bad. Well, next time you burn a half acre and next thing you know, you're burning a few acres at a time and you're starting to have some big impact on habitat quality. Yeah. Now, did you guys look at any other, I guess, factors that, that would impact the response on these? I mean, how would like in my case here, a big part of the hardwoods here behind my house are on a north facing north facing slope. Um, would I would I get the same results as as I would if it were a south facing or, or would I get good results at all? How, how would that impact it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I've done some work with that. Uh, one of my, I guess my, uh, my former major professor has done a lot more work with that, Craig. But uh, yeah, generally, if you're getting enough sunlight in and you're on a, a drier slope aspect, you'll get a lot of, of forage responding to that. And that, that definitely seems to be a better aspect, especially in upland hardwoods. In the pine systems, I, I haven't really seen a big difference. I mean, we're, you, you may get a few different plants if you're on the drier aspect than you would on the, the uh, you know, the cooler aspects uh, or, or damper aspects. But, you know, the, as long as you are, you are getting enough sunlight in, it, you get a pretty good response from the fire. And, uh, even in the case, if you're, you know, this is another thing that, that, uh, you're not going to get as big of an effect. if You don't have sunlight penetrating to the forest floor, but you still can get some attraction just from top killing a lot of the hardwoods. Plus it clears out shots, right? If you're in a pine stand that has mid-story hardwoods, you may not even have, you know, your bow range isn't very far. I guess if it's, if your shot lane is full of sweet gums, so, you know, that's another benefit you potentially uh, get from it is top killing those hardwoods, turning those into attractive food source while also uh, making it a little easier to, to shoot in that kind of, you know, stand situation. If, if you have a lot of hardwoods in the system, even in the closed canopy system, it'll be pretty attractive just because of all those things re-sprouting. So, uh, you know, definitely... You know, like everything, it always depends on all kinds of things, and we can find exceptions to, to any rule. But, uh, 
yeah, in, in every case, we tend to see that attraction and then it can really be magnified when you're allowing the plant community the opportunity to respond in a way that's desirable for deer. And along those same lines, what about geographic location? I mean, will, will this work just as effectively in the Midwest or up north as it, as it has here in the South? I think that it would, and uh, I have people contact me that are using it in different areas. I haven't collected data on it in other areas, but generally if it's in in upland stands, uh, I haven't seen an example where you don't have a strong magnet effect on wildlife. So in, in terms of in the most of the United States, let's say. Now, the, the times when you start to see uh, avoidance or, you know, uh, not such a strong attraction of the burn areas is generally when you get to really large scales or if it's a wildfire where it's really intense, those are the times that you start seeing some avoidance. I know uh, some of the, the turkey work and then even some of my work with deer shows that once the burn blocks get really large, you start have having areas within them that some of the species, they, they just don't travel internal into the burned area. I guess it's a lack of cover. So you might, uh, you may not see a strong of effect because of that, but in terms of, of uh, at these small scales, having a, a strong attraction, you should see that. Now, in terms of it coinciding with your hunting season, depending on where you're at and what the timing is and whether or not it's already past growing season, you may not see the strong attraction, but you still can observe some of those other benefits by the timing, you know, and, and uh, getting some burning done. Right. Lindsay, you got anything else? Uh, what if we, what if we not covered? Yeah, I was just thinking uh, in terms of the timing. So if you go out there, Marcus, and you and I've talked about this before, which is return interval, you know, mm-hmm. what's the ideal time to come back and burn a spot again? Um, in this case of bow range burning, these small spots you might do that literally that are hunting setups, um, you know, normally you don't burn every year. You're, you're, right. you're looking at a return interval of three, maybe four years, maybe more. More as you get further north, you've got to wait a little longer for the recovery mm-hmm. to sort of reach the point that it needs to be burned again. Um, you know, and you can go shorter frequency for more nutrition and longer frequency for more cover. We've talked about that, but in these hunting scenarios, um, you know, what, what do you, should you move on to a new stand site next year and burn next year and let one rest for a couple of years? What, you know, when you're, when you're looking at just a hunting attraction for a stand and you're trying to get deer in bow range, is it any different? What's the return interval to burn again? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And, and, uh, one that's hard to, to answer again, because it depends so much on so many things, but, uh, some of the work that, and I haven't gotten it published yet, but I think it's pretty solid. Uh, some of the work suggests that the more, let me think about how to articulate this well so that I don't confuse anybody. Uh, so when, when you're burning really frequently, the magnitude of the, the attraction of that burn is sort of, sort of diminished. In other words, like if you burn on a one-year interval, the impact on behavior of the the deer responding to it is not going to be as great as if you were on a five-year interval and then you had it at the fifth year. And that seems to be related to how much 
of hardwood resprouting is going on and how much reserves they have to put in that and how big the resource pulse is. But also, if you were burning really frequently, in general, you have a whole lot more good stuff just there anyway, right? A lot of forbs and things are already dominating that that understory. So I think that seems to be what's going on is that you're, you know, if you were burning pretty frequently, you're already shifting toward a, a herbaceous understory that's already pretty attractive anyway. And then burning that, you may not get as big of a increase in the attraction as you would if it was a place that they basically won't use. And then you top kill a bunch of the hardwoods and get a lot of forbs and stuff responding and the resprouting that's going to be a big magnitude of effect. So, uh, you know, that's a, a way to think about it. I guess to go more directly to your question, I would suggest that that people will give it a little bit of a rest, very similar to what you would have on some of your other return intervals. And especially if that allows you to get more places punched into the landscape on the, the burning scale, maybe you have five or 10 stands that, that you could do each year over a three or four year interval and again that that depends on where you're out in the country and you know in florida every other year we're going to have a a pretty strong component you know woody component already even in that scenario uh especially with a three-year interval but up north you know it may be longer maybe six or eight or ten years so that's a yeah definitely something that's depends on your your specific objectives and where you're at and how productive it is and how long the growing season is but great question something really interesting to think about and unfortunately i don't think that there's enough data to really pin down some of those mechanisms but based on the stuff i've been working on uh you know that that's kind of what i laid out for you what what i think based on on those data yeah and i mean you're talking small scale burns so it, it'd be very easy just to shift over, you know, a couple trees and, and do your 30 meter burn there, you know, and then the next yeah. year shift over a little further and, and just, uh, like you said, make that, that rotation eventually getting back to where you started. But Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That may be a good strategy if you have a particular location that you always want, uh, you know, that, that stuff to, you know, to be on the landscape, then uh, you could simply move your stand and, and uh, try another one. But I, I think, uh, you know, if you're, when you start getting vegetation up where it's obstructive to your bow hunting, it's time to burn it again. Yeah. I'm curious to see how many 30 yard bow range circles Brian can put in on his 15 acres. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to find out. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Maybe, uh, you know, get on an aerial and see how many can you fit in. And then start doing every other one or something until you. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely gonna definitely gonna give it a try, try this year and and see how it goes. I definitely this place definitely needs some fire return to it, and uh, that's a, that's a great way to kind of, like you said, dip your toes in the water and and mm-hmm. uh, get started with these small scale ones and build build my confidence up a little bit, and uh, then I can start working on on a little bit. A little bit bigger burns. Right. Well, you think about, I mean, uh, the average landowner in a lot of the South is about 15 or 20 acres. And, you know, if everybody got on board and we all started doing stuff like this, then we could make a you know pretty big impact on the, the deer population by having access to all these things. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, 
it, that's definitely a barrier. Another one that I hear is I don't own enough land to worry about doing that stuff. You know, that that's definitely something that people, you know, there, there's no point in, in uh, doing any habitat work or, or food plotting, you know, that uh, any of those things that, you know, people that own 20 acres are, are not necessarily thinking about that, like someone that owns 2000. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's where, you know, your cooperatives can come into play, um, sure. you know, working with neighboring landowners and, you know, making a, having a bigger impact by, by working together on those kind of things. Yeah. I, I think uh, another thing that I think that's a great point, you know, what, what are your neighbors doing that, that influences you in a lot of ways, especially as a small landowner. But another thing is you're trying to, if you want to be the most attractive one around, you want to be doing things that they aren't right. So you're yeah. implementing uh, some of these things to, to be more attractive as a property and chances are they're not fall burning. It's almost certain that that's not the case. So you know, this, that's another thing that probably influences the tr- attraction of a practice like this. And, uh, you know, think about it that way. It, your, your neighbors probably aren't doing it. And, and every, every landowner that I know, if you ask them, their neighbors are an issue. Unless <laughs> yeah. they're in a big cooperative, which I always think is funny because if everybody's ne- neighbor is a, is a problem, then you're a problem too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good, good reason to, to, you know, another reason, I guess, to think about something like this is that it's probably going to be the only game in town. Yeah. Well, I'll kind of put it back on you here, Marcus. Is there anything we didn't discuss about bow range burning here that we should have or any, any last thing you want to mention about it? No, I think we really well covered the topic. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I guess, want people to think about you know, this as a strategy to improve bow hunting, but also just to get you comfortable with habitat management and using fire as a part of that. And, you know, don't stop there. You know, if this is the way that it helps you get involved and and get comfortable, then great. And if you can scale up and uh, you start feeling comfortable doing that, then, you know, do that. It's only going to benefit the resource. That's a great, you know, what you said earlier about getting your toe in the water. It is. It's a great intro- introduction to prescribed mm-hmm. fire. Uh, you can show yourself real quick that you can do this. Um, and, you know, when you understand how it works, burn a small 30-yard ra- radius circle and have mm-hmm. some effective deer hunting, you know, next year come back and do it on a little bit bigger scale and start writing out your your burn units and your plan and your your fire rotation. Next thing you know, it's it's a part of your habitat management regime. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to get started. Yeah. And I think you, you kind of hit on something too that stimulated this thought. You're, you're probably not going to meet all your habitat management objectives with fire by burning it in 30 yard radius circles, but it does have the, the benefit of, of being really attractive and, uh, you know, for bow hunting and, and help you get to a place where you can meet your habitat management objectives with fire. Now, Marcus, I know you guys are, are very active on social media, so uh, where, where can folks kind of keep up with you and, and uh, the mm-hmm. University of Florida lab there and what you guys are doing? Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. So I'm directing the UF Deer Lab, and we're on all the social media platforms at UF Deer Lab. I also have uh, Dr. Disturbance is my handle, 
uh, on various platforms. So uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. And uh, we'd be happy for folks to follow us. We're trying to put out good information. We we uh, share a lot of y'all's information. Y'all do the same for us. You know, we're trying to, to get good information out to people so that they can better manage their resource and, and the hunting opportunity just in general. So uh, we'd be happy to have folks follow us or reach out if you have questions uh, through any of those platforms. Apparently, Instagram direct messaging is the, the way to communicate now. <laughs> I get more more communication through that one. And it, uh, to be honest, it's been a pretty effective way to communicate. So I'm happy to field questions if anybody has them through that as well. All right. Good deal. Well, we uh, we certainly appreciate you taking your time out here well well over an hour uh, to talk to us about uh, fire and bow range burning. And uh, yeah. I know I know I've enjoyed it. Yeah. So have I. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, that concludes our interview with Dr. Marcus Lashley. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.